you know what? I'm a center fielder. The minute you put me in the pitch, things aren't going to go real well. What does a great mentor bring to the table? The biggest thing I know is what I don't know. By you understanding what it is that you don't know, that's going to be one of the strengths of your success. And how does a restaurant stand for something good? We want food that's craveable and businesses that have a try. People will walk around proudly with a Shake Shack bag. They view it as a positive reflection on themselves, where you don't see lots of people walking around with a McDonald's bag proudly. We have a bunch of people that met their spouses in line at a Shake Shack. You don't really hear about people that met their spouse in line at Wendy's. This is the language of business podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs. Anyone thinking about a startup or a business pivot or just getting underway and looking for some help. Hear from experts who've been there and done that. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MPA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. In this episode, Greg Stoller gets the inside story from Rocky Romanella on how a great mentor develops into a CEO, and Mark Levitt, co-founder of Enlightened Hospitality, the company that brought us Shake Shack, reveals how they built a loyal following. Here's Greg. Thank you, Don. When you get to a certain level in an organization, everyone says your skills are transferable. But what happens if you're only going to be in a job for two or three years? What skills do you need and when? We're on location with Rocky Romanella, and welcome to the Language of Business. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. In the course of your career, you've coached sports, you've been a CEO, you've been a board member. What dictates your role at any future organization? Well, I think it comes down to what's your area of responsibility. If you're a CEO, for example, you're responsible for the day-to-day operations, as well as the somewhat strategy and vision of where the organization is going to go. If you're a board member, Well, now you have some oversight, you have responsibility to make sure that the organization is following all the rules and regulations. And so each of these responsibilities come with a set of rules and regulations you got to follow. Is that the same as company culture or is that your own set of rules and regulations? As you take on those responsibilities, part of what you have to understand is what is the company culture? You know, for example, if I become a board member, I want to understand who they are, what they stand for, what are the things they won't compromise as an organization. Rocky, most of your advisory work has happened over a two or three year period. What happens at the end of your term? It depends on the advisory board you're on, but most are startup companies. And so what ends up happening is you're helping them in that startup phase. You're helping them start to develop that answer. Who are we? What do we stand for? What are the things we're not going to compromise as an organization? What are we trying to create here in this startup situation? And as an advisory board member, you're helping them through that process. At some point, then they become an organization that may need a board, may need some other things. And so what ends up happening is that advisory board role and responsibility transitions into more of a traditional board responsibility. So let's talk about that a little bit more. What metrics or measurements do you use to determine what types of advisory services they need, when it's time to transition from an advisory board to a formal director board and stuff of that ilk? Well, I think what ends up happening is you really start to dive into the strategic plan. And where are you with that strategic plan? And what are the milestones that were set? For example, in the early days, you're raising capital, you're making sure you have what you need from a working capital perspective to grow the business. And then you start to hit those stage gates. Okay, we're break even took us 18 months and now we're beginning to grow our business. And so what are the next steps in that growth? 
what is the organization going to look like? It could be that you started out with a CEO, but now you may be moving towards a COO role that maybe you went from a chief accounting officer to now you need a traditional CFO. And so as those things start to happen and you hit those stage gates, that's when you start to think, well, okay, now we need a more traditional board. And maybe as an advisory board member, you transition to a traditional board member, or maybe you move on to another startup or to help in another area. It's all part of the strategic vision of the organization. Are you starting to hit those metrics that you laid out when you put together the strategic vision of the organization? How are your advisees evaluating your skill as a mentor? That's a great question. And I think when you talk about mentorship, it's such an important part of business. But I think it's important that you want to be a mentor and that you take that role and responsibility of mentorship very personal and you take it as a responsibility that you are proud to do and you want to do. That's important. So very similar to when you're mentoring an individual, you get to know the individual. You get to understand what makes them tick. What are they trying to accomplish? What's their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What are their opportunities for growth? And frankly, what are some of the barriers that are preventing them from achieving those goals of theirs? And the same happens in an advisory board. You're mentoring an organization and you're going through those saying, what are our strengths as an organization? What are our weaknesses? What are our opportunities for growth? And frankly, what are the barriers that will potentially prevent us from achieving those goals. And I'll tell you one real quick that always seems to come up, and that's the, this concept of allowing your strengths to become your weakness. One of the things I think that happens a lot of times, the strength of an organization, if they're not careful, becomes that weakness. It's the same with people. You know, if someone says to you, what's your strength? For me, for example, would be I'm high energy. I get to a spot early. You know, I love to fix things. What's my weakness? High energy, get to a spot early, love to fix things. And so in my zeal to fix, I may be stepping on someone inside the organization. I may not be delegating. I may be micromanaging. So I think those same areas that make you a good mentor to an individual also help you to become a very good mentor with an organization. How different is it, Rocky, coaching a team versus building an organization? They're somewhat similar. Because when you're building a team, you're trying to understand everyone's role and responsibility. And what you're trying to do is allow individuals to become part of your team, not to lose their individuality, but to understand that their individuality has to be within the confines of the organization. I learned this during my days at UPS when I was responsible for the UPS store. We purchased it as mailbox, et cetera, and rebranded it to the UPS store. But the biggest thing I learned there was we had over 3,000, now it's over 5,000 franchisees who are individual entrepreneurs now part of a large organization. We wanted them to keep their entrepreneurial spirit, but they had to do it within the confines of the organization. That's the same thing as a mentor in building your team. You want them to have their individuality. You want them to feel like they're part of something special, but you also want them to understand they're part of a team. What are the one or two top areas that an entrepreneur should look for in terms of retaining a good mentor? The number one thing is, is the individual that you're looking at to be a mentor, are they mentoring because it's something that's a passion to them? It's something they want to do? Or are they mentoring you because someone inside their organization said to them, hey, something that would help you in your growth is being a mentor. And I think that's so important because I want someone that's going to mentor me or I want to mentor an individual because I have that passion to mentor because someone did that for me and I feel it's important to give back. I feel like I learned so much from mentors during my career. I want to do the same for someone else. But if you find someone who's doing it as part of a responsibility they feel they need to do, or someone's asked them to do it, or they feel like it looks great on a resume. While those things may all be true, they're certainly not going to help you in that time of crisis when that something extra is necessary as a mentor and you may not be getting it. So I think that would be the first. 
The second thing is, as you're looking into mentoring, why do you want that mentor from your side? You're looking into why they want to be a mentor. Why do you want a mentor? What are the things that you're looking for? You have every right to sit down and lay out your plan of what you're trying to accomplish by utilizing a mentor. Make sure that you understand what it is that you're trying to achieve through this mentorship program. Rocky, who do you use as your mentor these days? I got to tell you, it's my wife. She's wonderful. My greatest business lesson came from my wife. And what was that? It's interesting. So we go out to dinner one night and we meet a new couple because, you know, we're Italian Catholic, as you can imagine, with my last name. And of course, you go to get the handshake of peace. You're talking to everybody in the church. <laughs> of course, Debbie's so friendly. So we meet a couple. We go out to dinner one night and we have four children for our grown kids. And the woman says to Debbie, hey, who's your favorite? So Debbie says, I don't have a favorite. And I'm sitting back. I'm thinking, I want to hear how she answers this. She goes, I don't have a favorite. They're all my favorite. The woman goes, come on, it's impossible. It's got to be Rocky, Nicole, Jean Marie, Andrew. It's got to be one of them. She says, no, they're all my favorites. And she said, Debbie, well, how could that be? And then Debbie said something that was so thoughtful, so insightful, and is my greatest lesson. That was, she said, well, they're all my favorites because each of them gets what they need when they need it. Now think about that. Each of them gets what they need when they need it. And from that moment forward, that's how I managed. If I had a seasoned CFO who really knew their job, they didn't need me to be asking them questions or following them around or micromanage them. What they needed me was let them fly, give them the authority that goes with the responsibility. So I didn't spend a lot of time with them, but they thought they were the favorite because I was leaving them alone. If I had a director of sales who was brand new and needed me to help them close a deal or spend more time with them or go on sales calls, well, they thought they were the favorite because what they needed from me was my time. And so from that moment forward, I constantly managed by this thought process of everyone in my care, everyone in my organization, they should get what they need when they need it. And so to me, that was my greatest business lesson as an adult. Everyone gets what they need when they need it. So they're all the favorites. Of all of the different people and organizations that you've mentored, are there one or two common themes that you tend to see again and again? Yeah, I think that the theme of it's so important to be a good communicator. I think that yeah, I think one of the central themes is being a good communicator. It's so important to continue to work on your communication skills. I also think as we move forward in this brave new world of ours, I think it's going to be important for you to brush up on your written communication skills. We're going to work remotely or we're going to spend time working with people who may not be in the office next to us or we can walk down the hall and have a conversation with. I think the written communication is going to be such an important part going forward. Communication skills, we always should work on them. They're so important and there's no substitute for being a good communicator. And I think that's one of the areas that constantly comes up in all of the relationships I work with. And even for me, myself personally, I'm always working on my communication skills. And I think we have to pay more attention to the written skills. So getting down to brass tacks, how do you specifically mentor someone to improve their oral or their written communication skills? One of the things I ask people to do is they'll have, we'll have a discussion or they'll talk to me about their next speech. They may be great public speakers, but I'll say to them, write it down. Let me see how you organize your thoughts. Let me see how you organize your approach to how you're going to handle this next conversation. I think what ends up happening is we get real comfortable in our ability to communicate one-on-one. -on -one. But I think even in that setting as being a one-on-one -on -one communicator or being in a setting where you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with an individual, as part of the training, I always ask people, put down your thoughts, put it down on paper. Let's review that before you have that conversation. I know it's a conversation you're comfortable with. I know you, the subject matter you're real comfortable with. 
let's do that so that we can start to work on that skill of written communication and your ability to communicate not only verbally, but at some point you're going to have to have that communication, maybe in a letter to your people, maybe it's internal communication to everyone inside your organization. It's good for you to understand that skill. Rocky, for students who come from a non-traditional business background or have a great idea, what sort of boot camp-like strategies can you give them to either advance their idea or be ready to work for a startup? The first thing that's going to help you with success is the thing that I always ask, tell people, which is the biggest thing I know is what I don't know. By you understanding what it is that you don't know, that's going to be one of the strengths of your success. The second thing is don't be afraid to ask because you're asking for help. So for, give me a quick example. If I'm running a company, the biggest thing I know is I'm not the CFO. What I do understand is that finance is the language of business. So I have to find the right CFO. I never view asking for help as a weakness. You as an entrepreneur, you have a great idea. That's the biggest thing you need when you start a company. So, okay, you nailed that. You're not the finance person. You're not the entrepreneur, but you know what? You got the idea. So now we got to find the right people to help you. There's some great books, but I'd find a successful entrepreneur. I'd find somebody you trust that's in the business world. Think about some of the people you've met in school, some of the people that you see are successful out there. Those are the individuals you wanna reach out for, but never sell yourself short. You got the idea, that's what you need to start a business. I wish I had the ideas that you had. I can help you run the business, but I'm not sure I can come up with the ideas that you do. Reflecting on all of your franchisees from mailboxes, et cetera, slash the UPS store, were your most successful ones from traditional business backgrounds or people who just, admitted what they didn't know and wanted to learn. Oh, no, it's the latter. It's the people that wanted to be successful. They wanted to own their own business. They wanted to grow their own business, but they were never afraid to raise their hand and say, hey, look, I don't really understand the P&L side of things. Can you help? Or I may need help with the marketing communication side of things. And those are the people you had the most respect for, right? Because they were so good at what they did. And then they realized, you know what? I'm a center fielder. The minute you put me in the pitch, things aren't going to go real well. Well, it's the same here. I've got ideas. I've got desire. I've got the energy and the enthusiasm, but I really need help here. And those are the individuals that always succeeded and always broke through when everybody else was struggling. They were the ones that created the hyper growth. Love it. Rocky, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Rocky Romanella, executive mentor, CEO, board member, and someone who gives their team what they need when they need it. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. We learned about the art of top shelf great mentoring. Next up, we hear from Mark Levitt, co-founder of Enlightened Hospitality, the company that brought us Shake Shack, when the language of business continues. I didn't even realize what it meant to be in a top tier business school until my first day. And I just really, for the first time, felt like I was in a place where everybody knew what was going on and everyone was incredibly driven to study this and perfect this field. And so I think being in a top business school really means that you are finding the barriers and the edges of the field and pushing them a little farther. And that's what Questrom has taught me over the past four years. The curriculum at Questrom's really helpful because you get to not only study the basics of business, such as accounting or marketing, but you really get to dive further in and to see applications of the health sector and how business applies to sustainability efforts around the world. They really want us to kind of focus it on four emerging areas, and those areas were healthcare, security, sustainability, and technology. Those are really where the jobs are going to be. They really want us to come out from the Questrom School of Business and, like I said, be able to work in any area of the industry. Interested? 
go to bu.edu slash Westrom. You're listening to The Language of Business. We heard about the art of top-shelf mentoring, and now we'll hear how Shake Shack developed a very loyal customer base. Back to Greg Stoller. Thank you, Don. Social media and e-everything has taken over nearly every aspect of building and running a successful business, but how does that relate to investments? We're on location with Mark Levitt, who is a board member with Union Square Hospitality Group, and welcome to The Language of Business. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. What is Union Square Hospitality Group? So Union Square Hospitality Group is a holding company that pre-pandemic owned 15 full-service restaurants. We're rapidly approaching that number again. We also have a catering business called Union Square Events, and it's also the holding company from which Shake Shack was born and sprung. It was founded and controlled by Danny Meyer, who was my college roommate, and also my partner in Enlightened Hospitality Investments, which is the private equity fund that I run with Danny and one other guy. Is the focus of either Union Square or Enlightened Hospitality to start new businesses or invest in already successful ones? The focus of Enlightened Hospitality is to invest in growing businesses around the hospitality space. And Union Square Hospitality's main charter is to run our full-service restaurants. And we also started a company called Daily Provisions, which is a brand we're excited about that we think is kind of a later-day Panera. But when you say you're building new businesses, are these ones that you're starting from scratch or instead purchasing from an entrepreneur who is in high-growth mode? More the latter. So what we do at EHI is our our first fund was a $220 million fund. We made 15 investments in that fund. We just raised our second fund, which is 50% bigger. So we're generally making 10 to $30 million investments for minority stakes in attractive growing businesses. Do you have any interest in transforming businesses over time or doing a turnaround? We have stayed clear of turnarounds and we, we see lots of turnaround opportunities and they fall into two categories. They can be cultural turnarounds and they think with the Danny Meyer magical touch that we have the ability to turn around broken businesses. We've chosen not to do that. And we see some businesses that are operationally challenged and we've stayed away from that as well. We try to find businesses that were either businesses we wish we had thought of ourselves and backed by management teams we wish we had hired to run those businesses. So this is our, kind of our second bite of the apple by setting up a private equity fund to actually go use our expertise in hospitality to then go back those businesses. Mark, you've been at this for a while. You're now on your second fund. What are your thoughts on investing in good old-fashioned businesses as opposed to ones that are e-commerce, e-everything, or something that is completely new and innovative? In my former life, before joining Danny seven years ago to set up these businesses, I was a tech media telecom banker. So I got to see sort of the merger between old technology, old media, and digital media, digital technologies. So I got to see that business really develop. And what I would say is good management is generally good management and can navigate away across, kind of across both those sectors, both digital and traditional. But how about the latest social media innovations? Are you integrating those with some of your existing businesses right now? When we look at businesses we want to invest in, what we say is, particularly in the food space, is we want food that's craveable and businesses that have a tribe. And it's become a lot easier to figure out who has a tribe because you can look at their social media following. But when we look at someone's social media following, that's really only one part of what we're actually looking for. Because companies use social media in different ways. Some companies use it as a megaphone and their opportunity to just blast a message out. We think the companies that do it better 
use it as a way to interact with their fans, with their detractors. And the companies that do it well will take people that have particular issues and instead of shouting back at them, we'll try to take them offline and deal directly with them. And we find that's a much more effective approach. And that's one of the things we look at when making investments is to say, how do they deal with their audience? It's interesting that you use the word tribe. Is that a nuance or did you instead mean to use the word cult? <laughs> one in the same. So does looking for passion-filled customers literally mean visiting them and investing more dollars? We have this discussion a lot and Danny will say, people will walk around proudly with a Shake Shack bag or a salt and straw ice cream bag. Yeah, they view it as a positive reflection on themselves where you don't see lots of people walking around with a McDonald's bag proudly. We have a bunch of people that met their spouses in line at a Shake Shack. You don't really hear about people that met their spouse in line at Wendy's. Of those 15 businesses, how many of them are permanently shut down or just shut down temporarily during COVID? All of them were shut down during COVID. Most of them are reopened. We think we're rapidly getting back to kind of 100% of where we were pre-pandemic. There's a couple where there's been ongoing issues with landlords and facilities that aren't ours that may not open again, but the bulk of the restaurants are back or about to be back. Reflecting on the move from COVID to theoretically some semblance of normalcy, how many of these social media innovations are going to be continued for the restaurants that reopened? We spent a lot of time during the pandemic saying what's happened to hospitality and the demand for hospitality. Has it gone down? Has it gone up? And our conclusion was the demand for hospitality is greater than it ever was, but the way people seek it out and consume it has changed pretty dramatically. We made an investment in Clear, the airport screening company that started a business called Health Pass to monitor people coming in and out of the restaurants and came to the conclusion that one of the ways people seek hospitality is through safety and physical safety for themselves and their families. So we thought that was an interesting play. We made an investment in a company called Goldbelly, which you may or may not know, whose business exploded during the pandemic. And Goldbelly really was a form of hospitality in that when people couldn't travel, couldn't go to the beloved restaurants around around the country and have meals with families and friends that they did pre-pandemic. This was one way to bring those memories back by ordering food from sort of iconic restaurants around the country. And then Goldbelly turned around and set up a business that's mission is really to restore about 100 iconic restaurant brands that disappeared during the pandemic. But when it comes to being iconic of your 15 restaurants, how many of those still use traditional menus as opposed to online ordering or the use of QR codes? It's funny, when people go to restaurants, people don't really like using QR codes. People really crave having a wine list and a menu. So we sort of have both of those things working now. A lot of times people will say, will you just give me the menu? Mark, thank you very much. My pleasure. Mark Levitt, board member with Union Square Hospitality Group and the managing director of Enlightened Hospitality Investments. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Greg. Support for the language of business is from Boston University Questrom School of Business. We're available wherever you get podcasts or ask Alexa. Social media is by Jennifer Powell of the Excellent Writers Group. Music by Randy Barth of Oswe Media. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio production, editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.